Welcome to Exploration Radio. This week's episode deals with the concept of wanderlust. It's not just another Jennifer Aniston movie, it's much more. Wanderlust is often described as an insatiable thirst for travel, culture, new people, or just the new in general. Wanderlust has driven many an explorer. We search out places where others haven't been and where others won't go. Our lives track like a photo album of some of the more exotic parts of our planet. But it's not all beer and Skittles. Our lives include a list of the shitholes of our planet, a list that doesn't even make the top thousand tourist destinations. Overall, exploration is in the middle of its biggest change. There is a move to the digitalization of our science. Some of the day-to-day tasks will undoubtedly change. There will be massive resistance, and we can hear the criticism now. But this change is inevitable. Our question is, what are the key elements that can be replaced? Or better yet, what are the key elements of being an explorer that can't be replaced? In our opinion, many of the personal skills will be irreplaceable. Dan Alberg is a personal friend of Steve and mine. Steve was Dan's manager for a few years, and Dan was my manager for a few more. And both Steve and I now find ourselves searching for someone like him. Non-explorers often say they don't understand explorers. In this episode, we attempt to crystallize an explorer by our conversation with Dan, an exploration geologist who speaks many languages, runs exploration programs in the developing world, and whose personal drive means he travels for work and pleasure. Dan and his wife have the personal stories and photo album that will taunt many of us. So why are we talking to Dan? Because he epitomizes a drive that explorers have and need. Join us as we continue our journey to find what motivates us, what drives us, and ultimately what inspires us to explore. We had wanted to do this interview live, but staying in the theme of this episode, Dan was somewhere in the middle of Africa. So we had to do this interview over the internet. And because many places in Africa don't have the best internet, there is an effect on the sound quality in parts. We apologize for that. But I hope you can still get a sense of our conversation with Dan. You live an extraordinary life. You lived FIFO for a long time and the same roster for a long time. And you and your wife make that work. In fact, you make it work by traveling as well and a lot of your off time. So can we just unpack this sort of FIFO thing? At uh, Yarwood University, I had uh, met my uh, future wife, and uh, she was a New Zealander, so I decided to make, make the move to New Zealand. And um, once, once I was uh, living in New Zealand in the mid-90s, I started looking for work overseas and very quickly found uh, opportunities in Indonesia. And um, really, that was the start of my kind of international career, which uh, you know has, has taken me around a lot of the globe and definitely around the Pacific Rim. You know, at that point, I haven't really looked back. I've been uh, working FIFO roster, fly and fly out of, you know, countries all over the world ever since then. So uh, really for the past uh, you know, 20, 20 odd years, it's just been a continuous stream of uh, fly and fly out with five different continents. Can you talk a little bit about that lifestyle of, you know, of, of being on a roster? You know, FIFO is the only thing I know. I've always known that I never wanted to go to an office in the city five days a week and have the weekends off. It just never appealed to me, and um, FIFO has always had a great appeal. I like the aspects of it that you actually get a long period of time at work where you can actually really get into the work in a big way and, and get things done. And then, you, you know, you have a good chunk of time off that allows you to, you know, really spend some time and do the things you, you, you like to do or you love to do. 
And, uh, you know, for me, that, that time off is, is, is generally about uh, travels. And I actually spend very little time at my home, wherever that might be, whether it was in New Zealand or now Cape Town. I end up spending very little time there. And uh, most of my time is uh, spent with my wife out traveling, you know, around New Zealand, around South Africa and around the world in general. And it's, uh, you know, it's a lifestyle that we both uh, just love. I just couldn't imagine now going back to a normal you know, five-day-a-week five, five a week job where you didn't get that, you know, where you only got one chance a year to, to travel, basically, during, during some annual leave or something. It would be, it'd be kind of like being, being sent to prison for me. Um, you know, I just uh, I love, the, love the freedom um, it allows uh, for travel and uh, just get, really getting away from work clears your head and you realize what the important things are in life and it's not all about work there are there are other things it's just a nice escape from real life i guess so dan would it be correct to say that you live to work or you work to live um it's a good question i think more and more i'm working to live i'm finding that i'm enjoying my time off more and more and um, really looking forward at some point where you know I can just devote more of my time and energy to things I really love to do, things like travel and, and health and fitness and um, being with family and things like that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to a point in time where I can spend more time doing those things and less time actually at work. I mean, I do enjoy work a lot. I always have. It's always been fascinating for me and interesting. But I think after 25 years so far of doing this type of thing, um, you're actually looking for, you know, to tone it down a bit and really you know, focus on the things that are, have become more important in your life than just work. You know, a job is a job and there are um, definitely more important things than, than the job. So do you think your wife shares the same love of travel that you Yeah, have? definitely. She, she loves to travel if I ever suggested that we stayed at home during one of my breaks, I think I'd, uh, you know, I'd be shot. You know, it's basically uh, we we go out to go out and do stuff. She's not going to sit around at home while, you know, while I'm there. It's I, I don't mind. I'm kind of, you know, more or less lived out of a suitcase for 25 years, and um, I actually don't mind that. It's a lot of fun, a lot of adventure, and uh, you know, she loves it as well. So, um, you know, we're a really good match. Do you ever get sick of travel? I haven't yet. I haven't yet. A lot of people I talk to, even a lot of people who do the same kind of rosters and, and work that I do, um, they you know they often complain about long trips and having to sit, sit on plane for you know for 12 hours and sit around airport. And I've never thought that. I've always been very excited about travel, and I look forward to sitting around airport. I find them very exciting places, full of people from all over the world. Um, going to all these different places, you look up at the, the arrivals and departures board, places that you've never heard of. You know, it's like where where the hell is that? And um, it's just kind of a, a fun experience to, to do that. And, you know, long-haul long flights, I, I love. It's a time to, to kind of tune out and watch some movies, read some books, and just relax. I love staying in hotels, whether they're five-star hotels or little B&Bs or, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's just kind of all part of the excitement, and I just haven't uh, ever felt that uh, I was sick of travel. So how much of uh, travel is um, escapism for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like living dual lives, you know. It's like you, know, you have a work life, you have a group of colleagues and friends that you, you, you work with. And, you know, it's often, I mean, it's, there's stress and hard work and frustrations and, you know, everything that goes along, you know, with uh, especially managing projects in the developing world. And, um, you know, when you're working a, a long roster and you're just like 100% effort into it, you really get totally kind of enveloped. And, you know, at some points it can feel like overwhelming and you kind of almost forget that you have this other life that's outside of work. 
And, uh, you know, when things become really stressful and, and, uh, and frustrating, you know, you just stop and think, that, okay, well, you have this other life, which I guess it is like an escape, but which one is the real life? The life out traveling with, with your wife and visiting friends and family, or is your real life actually work? It's hard, hard to determine which one's actually your real life and which one's the, the fantasy. But, uh, yeah, it, it is an escape. It's, um, it's uh, just nice to be able to, to turn off, to just go go off to, to some country and sit on the beach, climb a volcano, just do whatever you want to do and not have to think about it at all. Especially so you can send photos of volcanoes to Stephen Harmon so they know for sure that they're going to be annoyed. <laughs> so what happened after Indonesia? Well, I was on my uh, my trip around the world with, with my wife. We spent a lot of time in South America. And uh, while I was in South America, I made a lot of visits to various uh, mining offices and in Santiago, in Lima, in uh, Mendoza. I just made contacts um, within that part of the world. And, you know, as soon as we finished traveling, I was contacted by some of these people that, that I'd been talking with and uh, basically was offered jobs in, in South America. And I, I ended up accepting a job in Peru which took me into the Amazon basin on the, on the Brazilian border of Peru. So is that where your love of the jungles comes from? Indonesia was all jungle work, and I got a lot of experience in the jungles in Indonesia, and I kind of had enough of jungles by the time I left Indonesia. However, because of my kind of long experience with, with uh, uh, jungle-based exploration work, that was why I was basically hired to go into Peru, into the Amazon basin. Give us a little bit of a flavor of working in the Amazon the bad stuff, the good stuff, the bad <laughs> stuff in particular? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the bad aspect of it um, was that when I, when I started there, it wasn't an exploration program that I had personally planned or developed. I was basically thrown into kind of an existing, um, an, an existing plan, an existing program that was already underway, and I was just kind of taking another geologist's place. So I was basically thrown into the field. It's very remote. You know, it takes several days to get there down, you know, traveling up the Amazon on a, on a large boat and then uh, up a small tributary on a, on a, a small motorboat and then walking across uh, the jungle with a backpack for, you know, one or two days and finally you're in the, the exploration area. And there's no people around. There are no villages. There's no nothing. It's just, it's just very remote, pristine Amazon rainforest. And logistically, the program was not set up very well. There was no functional support line um, basically supporting that project in terms of getting food in and getting samples out. We may do um, by hiring hunters to uh, basically hunt food for us, uh, you know, bush, bush birds and tortoises and fish from the streams and things like that. So we basically lived off the land, myself and my team, for um, a number of weeks. Living out of a backpack, moving, you know, pretty much day to day, sleeping in hammocks. Uh, spent a lot of time being hungry, obviously, you know, but we, we got the work done. And, um, you know, once that hitch ended, I was able to kind of go back and recalibrate the program and basically get, get all the proper support we needed, including helicopter support and, and uh, you know, the proper proper manpower in the field to, to ensure that uh, we kind of had a, a safe and productive um, uh, work program where people were going hungry and we weren't forced to, you know, shoot bush pigs to survive. You're a very disciplined guy, extremely disciplined, and working in the developing world requires a special type of person. It's a remarkable story of how disciplined you are to learn languages, continue to train and keep yourself fit and do your job. It doesn't seem like there's enough hours in the day to do all of those. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's true. It's very difficult to find uh, enough hours in the day for everything. But uh, you know, it is a, it is a, there's a lot of discipline involved there, and it's it's something you know, the discipline aspect of it is something that I've always, I guess I've always had. You know, part of it's getting into into some routines. You know, especially when you're working a FIFO roster, and that you can you can basically prioritize your day you know, around the, the the things that you have to do and the things that um, are important to you. And uh, I, don't, I don't consider my health and fitness, I don't consider that, you know, something optional. That, that is something that I do every day as a priority. That the health and fitness aspect is, is a priority that, that actually prioritizes my work. <laughs> so I, I always try to make sure that I do that no matter what. Getting enough sleep and good nutrition, those, those type of things all come into that, uh, you know, taking care of yourself over your job. The language side of things, um, you know, since my first overseas posting in Indonesia, you know, I've been studying languages. I guess in Indonesia it was a necessity. I was kind of thrown out into the bush, into the jungle of Indonesia with no other English, and I had to, I had to pick up the language. Um, fortunately, Indonesian is a fairly simple language, and um, you know, I just I bought some dictionaries and phrase books, and you know, after a few months out in the bush, I, you know, it was very easy to pick up, and I developed my language skills there over over the course of about seven years that I spent there. It's a lot of hard work, but in the end, it was actually one of the most rewarding aspects of working overseas or working working in a foreign country that I found. It was just it was amazing to be able to to talk to people, you know, not my own team, as well as villagers and, and, you know, other people you meet in the street, just being able to talk to them and communicate with them in, in their own language. I've seen so many times in all the countries I've worked where, um, you know, expats go into the country and, and make no attempt to, to really get into the culture and get into the language and really connect uh, with their team and with, with the local people they work in. And they often struggle uh, managerially. They really haven't made that, that connection with the people. And it is a big part of, you know, the management of teams, especially when you're, you're managing teams in developing countries. A lot of them won't have English language skills, and it just lubricates things so much better if you can actually talk to your team in their language. And you just immediately have that have that connection, you build that rapport, and, um, you know, you actually feel like you're kind of part of a family. Such a rewarding aspect of, of the whole travel experience for me that I just kind of replicated that experience in, in every country that I've worked in. So Dan, in your career, what are some of the things that you've found really challenging? Well, I mean, there, there are physical challenges and, and there are um, other challenges. The other challenges involved um, in exploration generally have to do with the, I guess, the working environment that you're in, the you know, the political environment. In the, in the developing world, you, you come up with you come up against a lot of the same things, country after country. And you know that th- things like uh, corruption um, is kind of ubiquitous in the in the developing world. Some countries are worse than others, but it's always it's always a very big challenge to, to undertake an exploration program, kind of submitting to the uh, you know corrupt practices that are pretty much uh, everyday parts of the daily life of uh, of, of these countries. Obviously, the a, a big challenge is um, the the workforces finding and developing competent personnel uh, in these countries. It's, it's actually it's a huge part of the job to basically build teams to to hire people that have fairly limited knowledge, limited experience, and actually building that team up, building knowledge, building experience. You know, in the end, producing a team that's efficient and functional, and actually producing geologists eventually become so competent that they're then able to actually go out and become expats themselves and uh, work in other countries. So 
you know, um, it's, a, it's a long process. You're looking at five to ten years to, to kind of build really competent teams like that. But it's always rewarding to see some of the geologists that you've trained, you know, from when they were first graduates, you know, ten years later, they're actually working overseas in other countries as, as expats. You can never look at going into a country as, uh, you know, a short-term prospect. You know, you really have to put in some long-term effort to, to build teams. And, and get them to the level where you can actually go out and uh, make discoveries. One of your really good personality traits is exactly that. I spent two years working with you in countries, and I think I learned a lot about how to socially handle uh, an exploration project rather than just the technical side. I think in developing countries, that's probably the biggest challenge. Do you feel the same way? Do you think that the social aspect is sometimes more important in these projects rather than the pure technical side? Well, if you want to get the most out of your team, yes, the, the social aspects are, are incredibly important. And, you know, there, there are there are subtle differences from, from country to country and how you go about that. But uh, you, you definitely do need to get that, uh, that buy-in and definitely that involvement of the national workforce, you know, in, into the programs and in allowing them to make decisions, you know, based on the information and the data that they, they basically have. An, an example of unsuccessful programs are when you get programs that are just to- totally dominated by an expat and run pretty much run from like a head office back in Australia or something where all the decisions and all the data analysis and all the, the assay analysis, everything's done from the head office. And then that then direction is fed out into the field to the guys and say, you guys do this. And generally those programs aren't successful in the long run. So my philosophy is that we, you know, we basically have our decision making in the field, on the site, and we involve all of our people, um, you know, not just, you know, a group of expats, but you involve your, your, your full team, um, your national geologists as well. And um, you look to them to, to make decisions based on the work that they're carrying out. I mean, often, often your national workforce, the guys that are logging the drill holes, logging the RC holes, doing the mapping, doing the sampling. They actually have the best knowledge of, of the geology out there. And, you know, to just kind of ignore that and have someone in head office make a decision is, you know, it's a folly. I mean, I think this is a really good point. I remember you and I sitting in Tanzania and, you know, one of the goals we gave ourselves was to make ourselves redundant by the end of the project. And yes. I think that's probably one of the best goals we've ever had in a project. It forces you to do it. Yep, that's right. And, you know, that the, the Tanzania project was, I think it was a really good example, one of the most successful examples, I think, of, of that type of thing that, that I've ever uh, come across. We were only there, I guess, a bit over a year, but in that time... You know, the, the amount of progress and the amount of improvement that that national team made is phenomenal. You know, they went from being essentially sample monkeys to being guys who, you know, could, could make decisions on project and had become part of the, the management team there. So I thought, you know, that was a, uh, a great example of, of how it should work. And it actually happened there really quickly. Um, I had the pleasure of working with you, Dan, is, is, is country entry as part of project generation. Your skills at being able to work in different places and go into different places is extraordinary. You managed to go into a number of places and essentially get things set up. And all the things we've been talking about, I just feed directly into that as a skill set as well. Yeah, that was, um, you know, the years we spent on the, together on the project generation um, side of things, you know, in China, Mongolia, and then and later in Africa. You know, a lot of that work was was new to me. It was, um, you know, I'd, I'd previously been, you know, very much field-oriented geologist and project working on projects. 
However, it just seemed, um, you know, I felt it came pretty natural to me, you know, with, with my love for travel and adventure. Um, it just, it was something I actually really liked to do, and therefore it was fun for me. And it was actually probably, you know, if I could look back on my career, that was the, the, the time that I had the most fun um, in my career. I didn't have too many, you know, big responsibilities. I wasn't managing teams. It was just purely kind of technical work plus plus some people skills and, you know, just going out and seeing new things, talking to people, collecting information and, and putting putting everything together to, you know, eventually get the company interested in, in, in the country and uh, get a team set up there. Those years that I did that work were, you know, definitely a highlight uh, for me. And it was, uh, it was a kind of period of my career where I really had a lot of fun. I'm just sort of trying to recall some stories from that time and, and one of the funny ones that, that comes to mind was, um, you know, you're a bit of a fan of chilies. And I can remember being on a trip somewhere in Inner Mongolia where the, um, the locals that we were working with and um, in joint venture with had taken this to heart and gave you a, a big, big jar of chilies, which you actually sat yeah. underneath your chair in the bus that we were driving around in. And uh, they would constantly fill it up, and this was a this is a sizable jar of chilies, and Dan would just eat them like their um, like their chips. <laughs> yeah, that was that was really funny. I remember that well. They were always quite surprised at the amount of chilies. I, I remember it was so funny. They presented me that big giant, like a, a one gallon bottle of um, uh, pickled chilies. And yeah, I remember, remember putting it under the seat on the bus as we traveled around in, in Mongolia and they, they carried it into the restaurants. We go to the restaurants and they plunk down the, uh, the table. this big bottle of chilies. <laughs> it's like they thought that was the only yeah. thing you ate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the other really um, amazing moment that I can remember, I, I remember you going into a lot of African countries and... Uh, one thing that comes to mind was the uh, military coup in Madagascar, and I, I know you've started a few military coups. Right. Firstly, I can neither confirm nor deny my involvement in said military coups. <laughs> however, uh, <laughs> however, um, did seem to be a number of coups and similar types of events that uh, kind of coincided. Um, and I, I want to stress coincided um, with um, my visits to some of these other countries, you know, in particular uh, Indonesia in the late 90s, the, the, uh, the coup in the fall of uh, Suharto and uh, coup in Mongolia in the late 2000s. And, um, and of course, the coup in Madagascar um, in, in 2009. I swear I, I had nothing to do with it. Just coincidence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it always, always makes for exciting times and good stories later on. I mean, in reality, I was for the, for the most part, you know, you're never in any real danger in these situations. Um, a lot of them are kind of internal politics, and you know, there's always a chance you can get you know caught up in a crossfire or something like that. But provided you kind of keep away from the the main action, um, you know, generally it's not quite as bad as it looks on TV. The other thing that I got to see was um, you essentially going to Africa for the first time, and I can still vividly remember that you'd never worked in Africa and never really had any interest in it, and now it's become uh, an obsession for you. I, I can remember <laughs> telling you that, that you probably would be obsessed by the continent. I still remember the journey yeah. we did from Johannesburg to the Angolan border, one of those magic trips of, of your life that you can remember forever traveling through the Western Cape, Northwestern Cape, 
across the high valley, across through the whole of Namibia. It was just a magic trip. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. That's, um, you're absolutely right. That is, you know, that's kind of the, it was a seminal trip where I did really start to fall in love with Africa. I never had a huge desire to work in Africa. Um, I think most of that was, I never really knew too much about it. And, um, you know, my, I guess my first trip over there was basically in Madagascar. And then shortly after that, you know, we made that epic trip across South Africa and Namibia. And, um, you know, that was where I, you know, I, I basically realized, you know, what, what Africa was all about and what, what exploration in Africa was all about. And there was a lot of potential on this continent for discovery, you know, relatively mature compared to a lot of the other continents, great exploration environments, great geology, and, you know, very, very workable. And just the kind of the romance of it, you know, the, the African sunsets and traipsing across the, the veld, the landscapes of Namibia, you know, just all kind of came together and, you know, I pretty much realized at that point that I wanted to spend a lot more time in Africa, and um, I'm really happy that I've been given that opportunity to work here in Africa and um, you know, actually to relocate to Cape Town. So I guess the, the other thing about all this travel throughout your whole life uh, and constantly doing that is you have to give up things as well. There are sacrifices you make. Do you ever feel like yeah. you've um, right. had to sacrifice things as part of being a sort of traveling geologist? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. No, there's definitely a sacrifice that's made. One of the bigger sacrifices, obviously, is the, you know, it's the amount of time you spend away from your, your, your loved ones, your, your family and friends. For me, it's probably the most difficult part of it is just, just being away from family for, you know, for weeks at a time. It, it's difficult, but I think the rewards of it kind of outweigh the sacrifice. Another aspect of, of the sacrifice is, um, because I'm traveling all the time, I, I, I don't really have any uh, friends like outside of work. So all the friends I have are people who I've, I've met through work. Um, you know, it's you guys, it's, it's uh, the people in the countries that I've worked in. You know, I, I have a, a nice network of friends, but you don't have um, kind of those consistent friends that you're, you're always, you know, you're, you're always spending time with all the time. I mean, all my friends now are basically long distance friends. We, we chat on Skype and we send emails and things like that, but we rarely ever spend time together, hang out, all that kind of stuff. So that's one aspect that, that is lacking. You know, it's something that I miss from my, uh, you know, my college days. We have a lot, a lot of people around all the time, and you can hang out and have fun. Because you know, I'm traveling, I can never really make those real strong connections with uh, with friends outside of work. So that's another kind of aspect aspect of a sacrifice. Also, team sports. Um, I used to love playing you know, ice hockey and. Uh, tennis and you know various other things where you need to have other people around to actually play. Uh, you know it's just hard, very hard to do that when you're when you're always on the road and traveling. And you know if you do go back and try to get involved in games, time usually just hurt yourself anyway because you haven't practiced for like three years. Um, so you very so you kind of have to convert to individual sports. You know it's, you take up running and and weightlifting and bike bicycling and. And hiking and things like that, things you can do kind of on your own, no matter where you are in the world, you can kind of do a lot of these things. So um, I've kind of had to focus on those type of things. So I haven't really kind of had that opportunity to play uh, team sports for uh, quite a number of years. What would make you give up the flying flyout job? Is there a sacrifice that would be too much? I guess the only thing that would probably stop me from, from doing that is if it was hurting my relationship with my wife, I guess. I mean, if, if, they were, if we were having some serious problems because of my time away, then I would definitely relook at, at uh, the, the FIFO lifestyle. 
um, that, that would be probably the only thing that would really kind of prevent me from, from carrying on with the Bifold lifestyle. Uh, I like almost everything about the lifestyle, and um, uh, my wife Tracy, she's uh, you know we're living uh, in what we think is like a dream life. You know, unless unless that changes in the future, we're gonna we're gonna continue on doing that. So, how important is family to you? Yeah, I mean, family is very important to me. So, you know, my my relationship with with my wife is probably the number one thing of importance to me. And, that always comes first, and um, you know it always comes above above the job and above the FIFO schedule. So you know it is it is the most important thing to me. Um, in addition to my wife, you know I've got family in the, in the U.S. as well as family in New Zealand. Um, you know we try to uh, remain uh, close to as well. You know obviously with the distances involved, it's very difficult. But you know we still have a very strong relationship with uh, all my family members, and regularly travel to the U.S. and New Zealand to visit them. I rank, I rank family as the most important thing in my life. The justification for that is that you moved to Invercargill, which is uh, <laughs> described as the asshole of the world. Uh, yes, yes. I think it's a quote from Mick Jagger. Uh, when the Rolling Stones uh, went there in the 60s or 70s or whenever it was. I spent 20 years in, uh, living in uh, Invercargill, uh, New Zealand. I loved it. I, I, had a, I had a great time there. I loved, loved traveling around New Zealand. New Zealand's my type of country with the, you know, the outdoor opportunities. And the people, and um, it was the best time of my life. Although the uh, the climate can be less than ideal. <laughs> um, That's an understatement. <laughs> it was actually a lot better than the climate where I was. I previously lived in, in Alaska, um, so it was, uh, it was actually a step up for me in terms of as far as climate goes. It wasn't that bad for me, and, and the fact that I wasn't really there that much helped as well. But um, you know, I really I loved Invercargill, and I loved loved the people there. I love how it's so real, just a real New Zealand working class community. You know, there's nothing pretentious about it. Just a lot of hardworking farmers and and um, and miners and, and people like that. And I just really I like those kind of people um, that work work hard for a living, and um, I, I fit in pretty well there. There is one important thing that you did learn from all that time, though, which is uh, which rugby team to follow, Dan. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, a, I'm a New Zealand citizen now, and um, one of the preconditions of, of getting my citizenship and my, my passport was I had to pledge allegiance to the All Blacks. If it ever comes out that I've talked negatively about the All Blacks or I've supported another team then it's, it's actually grounds for revoking my citizenship. So I, it's something I do have to be very careful of. Um, but, uh, yeah, I have, um, I must admit, I have become a fan of the All Blacks during my time in New Zealand, and um, I definitely try to catch their games, their international uh, tests when, um, whenever I can. You know, I, do, I do feel proud when, they've, uh, you know, when they win the World Cup time after time. I think that's great, Dan. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. We wanted some uh, human stories of your life, the stories of what motivates you to be such a, a travelling geologist. That's excellent. Thanks very much. Yeah, look, you know, thanks for thinking of me. I guess when you spend a lot of time in these places and, you know, you don't always receive a lot of feedback on kind of as you as, you as a person type of thing. And, uh, you know, I don't think what I do is that special, but, um, you know, I guess... Uh, from other, other people's perspectives, that's interesting and, uh, you know, definitely kind of out of the ordinary, but um, it's just me, you know, it's just uh, me doing what I like to do, basically. <laughs> For those that ask why we do what we do, out of the ordinary, that's Dan Olberg. A lust for travel is a key want and an explorer. We have wanderlust, but it comes with a price. It comes with sacrifices. Is this a key skill in an explorer? 
a passion for travel for the new? You bet. Let's see a machine do this. I mean, it seems like people like us are kind of more, more and more rare in the industry, it seems these days. You just um, don't really seem to get that same passion for, you know, going out and traveling and seeing new things and uh, meeting new people and immersing, immersing yourself in new cultures. You know, it's just, it just doesn't seem to be so, uh, you know, popular these days amongst uh, kind of up and coming uh, people. So, uh, you know, it's always, uh, it's always great to talk to guys like you or kind of kindred spirits and this sort of thing.